It's 4 p.m. Stand up. It's count time. It's time for every man and woman to stand up and be counted. I'm Brother L.D. Azobra, and I'd like to welcome you to another edition of Count Time Podcast. Yes, and today we have another special guest. She is truly a living legend in so many ways. Awesome storyteller herself. Dear friend here, Dr. <laughs> Freya Rivers. Welcome to Count Time. Thank you so much, and thanks for inviting me. Yeah, we're looking forward to a great conversation, a great discussion, and a lot of history that I know that you're going to bring forward. And your story takes so many different directions, angles. I just want to want you to just start here and share your story, some things you went through. You went through desegregation here in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. You was one of them that was 9-11, like I think, like Arkansas, what, it was Arkansas 9? Yes, Little Rock 9. Little Rock 9, and so y'all had Baton Rouge what? 26. Y'all had 26. 26. So that was in 1963? 1963, we desegregated the public schools in Baton Rouge. Okay, do you remember some of those people who was part of that? Well, uh, there were four of us at Lehigh three black males and myself. I was the only female there. Who was the male? And they started and they started with our senior year here in Baton Rouge, which which was That was rough then. So yeah, you, where were you where were you before that? Southern High. Loved every minute. Another Southern High. <laughs> we got all these Southern Highs. <laughs> yes. I it was I loved high school. Did not I was president of the band at Southern High. What you mean president of the band? President of the band at Southern High under Ludwig Freeman, yes. But you played instruments? Yeah, I played clarinet, yes. Oh, okay then. Yes. Okay. In, in the band, and uh, we had a wonderful class. In fact, I think there were like 14 of us that DSEG that year came from the class of Southern High. The class of 63, 64. Okay. Now, who was who? You remember other people? Okay. Let's go back to Lehigh. There were four of us at Lehigh. The three males were from McKinley originally, and that was Lewis Morgan, um, Murphy Bell. Murphy Bell. Yes. And Melvin Patrick. At Baton Rouge High, my goodness, Marion Greenup, Velma Jean, Dr. Velma Jean Jackson, uh, Doretha. What was Doretha's last name? Doretha Davis, yes. Uh, Betta Bowman, Elaine Boyle, Gail Vavasour, Elaine Schutz, no, Meryl, Meryl Patan, Paula Waller, Carmen Williams. They were at Glen Oaks. I know that's not all, but there were 26 of us. But, do, you know, that, that had such a great impact on you that almost, how long ago this was? Over 50 years. 50 years ago. About 55 you, years you ago. You remember, that was quite a few, or you remember quite a few of their names, because it, it was that impactful on you. Yes, uh, it, it, it was. We developed a family, a, a camaraderie that year that just drew us together. On weekends, we would meet at the Y uh, to kind of deprogram us from all of the atrocities we had suffered that week. Uh, we also had uh, tutors to help us if we needed uh, any assistance with academics. So we were, we were a pretty close group. We just had to be. We didn't have anybody else. 
However, the, the black schools in the city really supported us that year because Southern High wouldn't let just outsiders come to their events without approval, prior approval. But when we deseg that year, they welcomed us back for all activities. So when you, now let, let's go back, give, give us a uh, preview, insight on what, what it was like uh, your first day which with the, with the great Robert E. Lee that no longer exists is now. Thank goodness. It's, it's the Liberty High School. <laughs> so what was that first, do you remember that first day? That, that oh yeah, that, those are times that you don't forget. The first day, uh, first of all, we all went in taxis each year, all year. Whole year. Uh, the whole year. It was raised, the money for the taxis was raised from the community. Marcel's gas station on East Boulevard and, not East Boulevard, Washington Street, and Horatia Thompson's gas station in Scotland uh, gave us gas discounts so that the taxis could run. Some of the people in the community like uh, Daddy, uh, Raymond Scott. Um, Raymond Scott Taylor. Yes, yeah, Raymond Scott the Taylor, uh, and many of the churches contributed money so that they could, we could go to school in the taxis. They were afraid for us to be on the buses. Uh, they were afraid for us to drive our own cars. So they ended up taking us in taxis each day. So you didn't have to have police escorting you? Uh, the first, first day we did. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, first day, uh, they didn't escort us, but they were there at the schools. And if you read the newspaper, you'll think that everything went smoothly. There were no protests or anything. I think there was only one incident that they reported in the newspaper. When I started doing my research uh, for my book, I was like, well, that's not how I remember this. When we drove up to Lehigh, in the taxi. they asked us to come an hour or so late so that the principal would have time to prepare the students for us coming. And basically, uh, he told the students he didn't want us there either, but we had to make the best of it. So that's... Who was that person by that time? McGee. I don't remember his first name, but it was McGee and the assistant principal was McCoyne. And they couldn't stand us being there. They gave us hell. They didn't support us in any way. Now there was a secretary there I can't remember all these names now, but she was nice as she could be. And whenever I felt like I couldn't make it that day at school, I'd go to her and she was just, you know, very understanding. However, her and Miss Church were the only two people that I would even... Thank the group. Yes. Very nice. So you was basically on your own as a female. Yes. No yes. And y'all was all in different classrooms. Y'all was together? Uh, Murphy and I had two two classes together. Attorney Murphy Bell. Attorney Murphy Bell. Uh, his son. Oh, okay. It's Murphy Jr. Right. right um, Murphy and I were in class together uh, for social studies and English. The rest of the time I was on my own. Now the guys had some classes together. Uh, they were able to go to their lockers. I wasn't, because I would have been alone. So the other part of that was, 
I couldn't go to the bathroom the whole time I was there because I was alone and would be attacked had I gone in the bathroom. <laughs> so you had to take every precautionary measurement. Yeah. Because yeah. you, you, you felt like you was in an enemy camp. Not felt like I was you an were. enemy camp. It was a constant battle. Um, that first day when we we went to the office and we were escorted to our first class. And as soon as we walked in, everybody in the class moved away from us. So we had a row, well, completely around us. There was no one. Uh, teachers ignored you in class, wouldn't call on you. Uh, students, whenever that particular teacher, and he did it often, that was Coach Wicker, whenever he walked out of the room, they'd start throwing spitballs at us or calling us names. So you had to go your senior year and endure this? Yes, senior year, when you're supposed to be enjoying high school the most, looking forward to graduation and all. So now you just left Southern High, where you was the president of your band. Did you participate in band at Lehigh? No, well, I did. Um, I couldn't march because uh, Baton Rouge said they couldn't protect us for the games. So, and I was the only black in the band. I, I, so we, I didn't march, but I played with the band. I also played with the concert band. But you went from one type of music to a whole other genre of music? No, Southern High had a concert band also. Oh, okay. Yeah, and I had played several solos in Southern High's band. In fact, when they had the state competition, uh, Lehigh said that I couldn't participate. And Erka was the superintendent of the school board at the time. And I, my father said, well, it's going to be right here at Estruma. What reason are you giving us for her not being able to participate? And Erka had to, he said, do we have to go to court over this? Every time I turned around, Daddy was talking about going to court over something. And so Erka, uh, we got to tell them who your daddy, Doctor Dupe H. Anderson, Anderson, who was a, a, a local dentist, local. but also he was a part of what the first boycott in Baton Rouge, uh, in 1953 bus boycott when King came here. He, he was at that meeting with them. Oh yeah, and um, you know he and Johnny were part of that meeting, and uh, Johnny Jones, Dr. yeah, Dr. told King at that meeting that. When King came, we now had a precedent with the 54 Brown versus Board decision. So uh, King told, uh, Johnny Jones told King, now that we have a precedent, you can go federal. We didn't have a precedent in 53. We were a year ahead of it. So when King came here, uh, that's what you know. The, Johnny Jones told him, now we have a precedent, let's use that. Also, the strategy for the Montgomery boycott came out of Baton Rouge with using uh, personal cars. And we used personal cars here in 53. Uh, we raised, again, gas money. We raised bail and uh, ticket money because you constantly, if you, that week, if you were participating in bus boycott, you were getting tickets. And I was a child then from like six or seven and I remember sitting in the car and the policeman coming up giving us a ticket daddy was waiting to get some more passengers and the policeman gave him a ticket I didn't know what it was so when daddy came back to the car I said here daddy 
policeman left you some mail. <laughs> and needless to say, my daddy started cussing. <laughs> you do what no good did. Right. But, but daddy, I mean, he, he worked with the bus boycott. Uh, he and A.C. Belton were two of the first, and Johnny Jones, two of the first to run for public office in Baton Rouge since Reconstruction. And your daddy ran for what? Daddy ran for mayor. Ran for mayor of, of what? Baton Rouge. East Baton Rouge Mayor. Yes. And what year was that? 1960, I think. 1959-60. He was the first to do Yes. I think he came in fourth. Jack Christian was running on that, and uh, he was fourth until all of the absentee ballots were counted. But what that did was give us leverage uh, to get some policy established in Baton Rouge. So, um, you had that election. Uh, Daddy also worked with getting the department stores desegregated so that they would hire blacks, getting black policemen, uh, city workers. We didn't even have black garbage uh, or sanitation workers at that time. Um, 1963, we had our first black police officers and we were able to get the first city employees with the sanitation department. So the same year they desegregated right. the school is when other things started opening up Started too. opening up too. Prior to that, Daddy had gotten the Boy Scouts uh, to be able to buy uniforms and form troops because they weren't allowed to buy uniforms. Um, the Boy Scouts couldn't have uniforms? No, no. No, be no. Us, right. we couldn't have uniforms. We couldn't have uniforms. And Welsh and Levy sold them. Uh, but you couldn't buy a uniform as a black person. So he was able to get the Boy Scouts, Scouts to open up. Um, he was able to get public libraries open. Um, so Daddy was at the forefront of so many issues here in Baton Rouge. It was just unbelievable. So, so he is still the, the warrior spirit. Oh, yes. So when, when it was time to desegregate the schools, I really did not want to leave Southern High. I mean, I cried many a night. I didn't want to leave Southern High. Did your dad figure out, okay? No, and he didn't pressure me. He didn't pressure me. But I just felt like I had to honor him and all that he had done. So it was an obligation that I just had to honor. It was forfeit. Yes. And Lehigh was hell. So the, after that first day, we spent a week in school with everybody moving away from her, with everybody calling us names, throwing spitballs, and then the bombing in Birmingham with the four little girls the week after we started school happened. And anytime anything happened nationally, uh, Baton Rouge would just go up, just revolution almost. So that Monday after the girls were killed in Birmingham, um, the school was horrible. They were laughing and joking, talking about, we kill four y'all, we gonna get you to the four here. It was, it, it, the, the emotional trauma that we went through was worse than the, any physical altercations that we had. Didn't offer any uh, counseling or any type of services to help you through that process either? Uh, no. As I said, we met at the Y on Saturdays. Um, 
with local leaders. The debriefing. Right. Uh, just to get us together for some camaraderie to discuss what had happened and uh, who, who, how. Who would be at these meetings besides the students? Um, who would be at the meetings? Hmm. It's, sometimes some of the local leaders would drop through, but mostly it was teachers and support from Southern University. Uh, I remember W.W. Uh, w. Williams at Southern was our math tutor, uh, Dr. Faggot, and he would say it, I'm not one. Every time he would give you his name, you know. But he helped us with research papers. Uh, is it Melba Williams? Melba Simmons. Melba Simmons was there. Uh, Miss Tacno, T. Lois Tacno, and her sister, Erlene Williams. Uh, Roberta Tyson and her mother, Miss Shade. There, there were various, mostly, mostly women, that would be there. Uh, to support us. However, we had uh, the pastor of Bethel, I don't remember his name at that time, mm -hmm. Daddy, uh, Johnny would, would come by often. Who else would be there? I don't know, I can't remember just all of them. Uh, Wade Mackey, uh, the white person in the community that we could always count on. He was a Quaker. Uh, and Wade was always there at the forefront and helped to organize white ministers to support. So we had that support group and when things like the bombing happened, we could always have each other's shoulders to cry on. Because that was, a, now you had to be concerned for your own life for real now. Oh yeah. It became real to you then. Yes, and it wasn't just at school. We weren't allowed, we lived on Christian Street, and we weren't even allowed to go out in our front yard because students would come by and throw dead animals, rotten fruit uh, in our yards and driveways, rotten eggs. They constantly egged the house. They would hang um, like a dead cat or a mouse from the small porch that we had on Christian Street in the front. So it was dangerous. The Klan would come out often and burn crosses. If it weren't on our yard, it was on the yard across the street from us on Christian Street. They would, the Klan would come out, you're talking about Christian off of Perkins over here? Yeah. Oh yeah, that was a regular happening. In fact, it happened so often, my uncle who lived two doors down uh, he and the neighbor across the street. Uh, my uncle was Helvis Thompson and the, Mr. Crane uh, and his children lived across the street from us. So one night they sat in my uncle's driveway waiting to see if they could catch someone and coming down the street either throwing stuff in the yard, hanging animals, or the Klan. And one night they caught this car coming down the street and they took out after it the car ran down Christian Street, headed towards Morning Glory, made the right turn on Morning Glory, all the while Uncle Helvis is chasing them, and chased them. Evidently, they didn't realize where they were, and they ran straight into City Park Lake. 
So I can help. I can help. Something good. Came right, right. So they came on back home, and they made a re the report in the newspaper. You know, said car ran in the city park lake, but they never told that they were being chased. <laughs> <laughs> and so they chased them straight into the lake. We laughed about that. Said, "Uh huh," but no, they when when Daddy ran for mayor, they shot in the house. Yeah, I mean, it was just it was a constant battleground. They figure out what's wrong with us. They asked, "What's wrong with us?" Right. I mean, we we suffer from post traumatic slave syndrome as it is, and then all the trauma. Right. Just the segregation syndrome, yes. got all kind of syndromes. Yeah. So right before Thanksgiving, right before Thanksgiving break, the week before that, several of us met at Southern High and said, well, we're going to quit. This is too much. Oh, we. Right. Because we, we, we spent the whole week at Southern High just enjoying each other and our classmates and everything. And we said, okay, we, this is too much. We went back the week before Thanksgiving saying, okay, this is our last week. You know, we were all excited. I don't care what you do. Bring it on, you know. <laughs> we don't care. This, we we don't care. this is our last week. Y'all can have it. Right. And then that Friday before Thanksgiving, Kennedy was killed. Changed everything. Murphy and I were coming through the lunch line and we heard the white kids joking, man, you heard we shot Kennedy? They were laughing and just having a great time. The, the, students, the students was laughing about the president of the United States being killed. Correct. In 1963. November 22nd, 1963. So Murphy and I were trying to console each other, saying, oh, this is just another one of their ploys to get us out of here. It's not real. So we sat down, and while we were eating lunch, they were jumping across tables, I mean, just celebrating. And we kept saying, uh-uh, they're just trying to get us out of here. And then Murph, um, Lewis Morgan, and Melvin Patrick joined us at the table. They said, you've been hearing this? And we said, yeah, but... You know, we don't think it's true. So Murphy and I headed to our next class, which was English with Miss Helen B. Church. Fortunately, it was her. When we arrived at the class, the door was locked, which was very unusual for her. So we stood out there a minute, she showed up, we walked into class, and they had turned on the intercom. They were playing the news that the president had been shot. And the class erupted. Like a, like a football game. Yes. They, they were excited. That the president of the United States. They were cheering that the president was shot. Their president. Their president. And they were, oh, I hope he dies. I hope he dies. Miss Church stood up in front of the class and she said, you know, it's a sad day in this country when we kill our president over political views. That's why we should have a democracy. She went on and then it was, she was interrupted by Cronkite saying the president has died.
as almost as soon as those words came out of his mouth, two huge white men, that's how I remember them, came to the door of the classroom, talked to the teacher, and Miss Church asked Murphy and I to go with them. I didn't know who these men were, what was going on. All I knew was that Kennedy was dead, and now these white men are here. <laughs> what, what, are they declaring? What, what the hell? Too big, too big. <laughs> big white men. It's like, what the hell? Where are we going? You know. So um, they told us, we're here to escort you to get you home safely. And so Murphy asked to go to his locker uh, to get his books. So they walked us across the ramp to, their, to his lockers. Meanwhile, two other, uh, what we found out they were federal marshals, had Lewis and Melvin, and they were at their lockers, the three guys. But while they were trying to get to their lockers, a mob of students surrounded us. The federal marshals and the math teacher the white math teacher that Melvin and Lewis had, had to literally surround us, wrap us in their arms, and walk with us all the way to the taxis. The taxis had been called. Why, because the students... The students... Converged on you Converged on us. They were attacking us. They were beating the federal marshals, and they were saying things like, we kill Lincoln, we kill Kennedy, and we're going to kill anybody else that tries to help you niggas. So the federal marshals uh, were able to get us to the car, and just as they were closing the car door, someone threw a bucket of feces and urine at the taxi. Got the federal marshal. Fortunately, they slammed the door and got us out of there, but they were beating on the the marshals were beating on the door, get them out of here, get them out of here. You know, that's how violent the students were that day. And Lehigh went on with their hootenanny that afternoon. While the world is mourning the death of Kennedy, Lehigh is celebrating. And you can't speak for the other schools, but you know Lehigh. Oh, no, from, from what our conversations have been about that day from all of us that have desegregated, they went through similar things. So basically all the schools were all, celebrating. All the schools were celebrating, the all best. the schools. And, and it's strange how they ended up with some of the same chants. Because when we talk to each other, we find out that Baton Rouge High, they were saying the same thing. We kill Lincoln, we kill Kennedy, we gonna kill anybody else who tries to help you niggas. How do you get this type oh, they, of, they, right? Uh, on an instant, you know, but that that shows how how they felt. The whole year was was that kind of thing. One Saturday we met and uh, we said this nonviolent crap is not going to work. We have to take matters in our own hand. So they used to, if we were in the hallway, they used to bump us from one side of the hall to the other, just bump into you and try and knock you down. They would spit at you throw things at you if you were outside. And this went on all year. Um, so one Saturday, we, I came up with, well, let's devise some tactics. So we started carrying uh, safety pins, opened them up, and you walked with your arms crossed with pins in your hand. They couldn't see them. 
but when they bumped into you, they sure as hell felt you. So that stopped them from bumping into you. Another thing was, the, we had little bitty water guns. And so we'd fill the water guns, and then when you were in the hallway, you could go, if somebody looked like they were gonna spit on you, or even if they had done something to you before, you'd, you'd put your hand up to your mouth and shoot the water gun. I, I used to practice trying to spit. I never could get, I, I could not do projectile spitting. So I used, right, so I would use the water gun and put my hand up to my mouth and go, and shoot them with the gun. They thought I was spitting on them. And, oh, they stopped spitting quickly because the worst thing in the world was to have a nigga spit on you, you know. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So, um, I mean, we, you just had to. I had uh, a shoulder bag that I would carry. And Lehi had all of these ramps that you had to go from one side to the other to classes and all. And any time that I could catch somebody on the steps, I would clip them with my person, make them fall down, knock them over. You know, uh, if they threw something at me, I remember one time during that period, there was the area called the bullpen where white guys could go and smoke. And like students. students in school, there were areas that you could go smoke the bullpen. And they were some of the rowdiest guys in the school. I guess so, if your parents let you smoke, you know what kind of home you're coming from. But at any rate, um, they, were in, they would stand over there and call us names and mock us all day long. And so one day, um, this guy threw a rock in our area during recess. It came mighty close to me, it didn't hit me. I picked up that rock, rubbed some dirt on my coat, went to the office with the rock and said, they hit me with this. <laughs> so the principal said, who? So I picked out four boys. I said, I don't know which one, but there was these four right here. And so they got suspended for a couple of days. But I mean, we had to do something to protect ourselves. When I played at the state rally uh, for a competition in the band, First of all, the band directors said the piece that I selected, he'd say, that's quite difficult. You're going to play that? I said, yeah, I've been playing it for years as a solo at Southern High. So my mother accompanied me on piano, and we were at Estroma. I attempted to play like two or three times, and each the first time it was a lot of noise, so the judges stopped. I stopped, and the judges stopped. Uh, then they were eating lemons to try and make your mouth pucker, uh, so the judges put them out. And then the third time I tried to play, they started with the noise again. So the judges stopped, and they said, if they can't get quiet, they would empty the room. So I was able to play so they would, and finish. They wouldn't allow you to even play. Right. Song. Right. So that Monday in school, they announced the results of all of the students that had gotten superior awards, and they didn't call my name. And I had to go to the office over that. For honor roll, they never called my name until the last nine weeks, and that was only because Glenn Jubin went to the principal and said, I know Freya's making the honor roll. She needs to be on there. He was the only 
there was Glenn Jubin and one other uh, younger uh, white girl, I think she was a freshman or sophomore, that even spoke to me that year. No one else. Glenn had a twin brother, Lynn Jubin, who played basketball. So the coach was my first class uh, teacher, and he taught sociology. Very racist information coming out of there. I could have choked him every day. But my first week, I spoke, Glenn had spoken to me once before. And so when I saw him again, I spoke. And he turned his head and walked away real quickly. And it wasn't until homeroom, like the next week, when Coach was talking about his star player, Lynn Jubin. Uh, the, and so one of the students says, well, how can you tell them apart? And then I realized I must have spoken to Lynn and not oh, Glenn. Okay. <laughs> but Glenn uh, kind of went to bat for us behind the scenes. One, he made sure that I was recognized as an honor student. Another student done this for you. Another student. Lehigh was recognized and was a charter member of Mu Alpha Theta, the Honor Math Society. He made sure that I was a charter member because originally they didn't have my name on the list. He said, but she's in this math class, she needs to be in it. So Glenn fought behind the scenes for me. We never really had conversations or anything, but he was, he was just there and he spoke. You can't imagine how you feel when a whole school of people don't speak to you. I mean, you in a hostile right. environment. Right, move away from you when you walk in class. Teachers, my, my American history teacher would say, Nigra, I would always sit on the first row. And she got on one of her tangents talking about Negras. I said, look, the word is Negro. I said, now, if you want to say nigger, that's a word, but nigra is not a word. You're making up another word. Right. Oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to offend you. I said, well, you did. I said, now, it's either Negro or nigger. Oh. You, you, you had the student talking to the teacher like Yes, she turned purple. She turned purple. Because everybody knew not to, well, they should have known. Don't mess with her. You know, especially like teachers or anybody in administration because my daddy my dad was going to take you to court daddy's going to take you to court so just leave me alone <laughs> you know so southern high had a class trip to dc new york and everything oh my god i wanted to go on it so badly but my parents arranged for me to go on the class trip with Southern High. I was the only one that desegregated that had that privilege. Nobody else knew what was going on behind the scenes. I didn't know till the last minute. Uh, but we had to get all kind of special permissions, insurance and everything, since I wasn't a student, technically a student at Southern High, but they allowed me to go. Now what that trip was about, an educational trip? Yeah, it's an educational trip that uh, Southern High used to have annual trips out of state for the senior class. So they allowed me to go. And in the meantime, the Lehigh students thought I had dropped out because I was gone for over a week. I had gotten permission from my teachers at Lehigh to go. They were happy to see me go. Um, but when I came back, all hell broke loose again. <laughs> see, she's back. Right. 
that was, but worse than that was, while I was gone, Daddy had filed suit for me to desag LSU that summer. But he started again, huh? Oh my God! If your daddy loved you. If you thought it was bad desegging the public school system, I mean. That was like trying to desegregate heaven to go to LSU. Oh, they were angry as hell. And first she gonna come in here, now she going to LSU. LSU was already desegregated, but not the undergrad. Oh, the undergrad was right. I mean, they had LSU is probably the only school in the country that took three suits. Uh, Turo did law school. He did undergrad. But they canceled that undergrad, and he left after the first semester. So then they had to come back again. AP two. Right. So then they had to come back, junior, or second, whatever he is. So then they had to come back, uh, and he said grad school. So they were black grad students on campus, but they did, would not let undergrads in. We filed, I filed suit back, I think like March or April, and it was in E. Gordon West's courtroom. He waited, we went to court like that Friday, and he waited until the day classes started to render his decision. We didn't even have to testify in court because he knew it was illegal and that they would have to overturn, but he did not, render his decision until the day school started. LSU would not accept hand-carried transcripts. I mean, students from Southern High and we were trying to get transcripts down there to LSU, they wouldn't accept anything hand-carried. So then we had to go back, get sealed envelopes, all kind of mess. There was one, I think his name was Adam Sterling. He lived in the dorm. He was the only person in the dorm that summer. I think Maxine Crump came that fall and stayed in the dorm. But that summer, Adam was there. They trashed that dorm. They rolled, they set trash cans on fire and rolled them down the hall. That's the dorm that you was in? No, that he, I didn't Adam, stay in the dorm. Adam, okay. Adam Sterling. Uh, I think that was his name. And many times Adam would stay with us just because it was... So, now hold on now, so you, because of your dad and Attorney Jones and people like that, you went through desegregation at high school, your senior year in high school, we went to Lee High School. Yes. You turned right back around, your daddy really loved you. Right, to deseg LSU, that's And the same thing, students moved away from you at LSU, they threw spitballs at you at LSU. There was this big old football player, I was standing in the basement of the union using a pay telephone, and he threw a spitball at me. I dropped the receiver on that phone, ran after him, chased him down, and beat him in his back. I was just beating on him. You know, and you did play. And he turned around and looked at me like, that girl's crazy. I said, yes, I am. I said, please don't lay a hand on me. I said, because we're going to both go to jail because I'm going to try my best to kill you. He ran. He, he just looked, you know, he walked off. I let him go after I beat him, you know, because I realized this, all he has to do is slap me. I'll be a spot on this concrete, you know. But you, that didn't cross your mind. No, no, you just get so 
angry. Tired of this. Yes. Sick and tired of being sick and tired. Yes. So, I mean, L LSU, and I told Daddy, I, I was accepted at uh, Newcomb, Tulane. What, Newcomb was the girls' part of Tulane. I was accepted at Newcomb. I had scholarships to other universities, white universities. And I told my daddy, I said, hey, he told me he would give me a car, my own car, if I go to Newcomb. And I could come back and forth whenever I got rid from New Orleans to Baton Rouge, anytime I wanted to come home, because I'd have my I said, Daddy, you can't pay me to go to another white school. <laughs> I said, I won't go to college if I have to go to a white school. So I ended up at Howard, but I you, you, swore. You had all you could take. I had, I had had it. This don't make no sense. I want to enjoy myself. Right. It, you know, I, I thought I could, but at any rate. And then after I got to Howard, it was like, Rap Brown was there. H? Yeah. He from Baton Rouge too? Yes. Yeah, Southern High. Mighty Kittens. They still got him locked up. Yes. Whatever justifiable reason they have. Yeah. It, it, it's it's not justifiable. Uh, Alamine is in a prison in Arizona. Another guy has even confessed to the crime that they have him locked up for. They they won't give him a retrial or anything. It's definitely been, been twenty five thirty years. Yes, it's it's definitely not justice. So you're you're an age rap problem with the school again? Well, rap was had an apartment. In DC, he technically he had withdrawn from Howard because he was one of the leaders of SNCC, and I was thinking about going down for Freedom Summer with SNCC, but Rap had all of these white people coming through that were part of SNCC, and I told him I said, I want to join, but I I can't deal with white folks right now. I'm still angry. I'm full of hate. I I, I can't do it, and. Rap says, I understand how you feel, he said, but what I do is I know where they're coming from, and when the line is drawn, they're not going to be on our side. So, you know, he gave me those words that I've kind of stuck with to always know where the enemy is. But seeing all the white people that were in SNCC at, time, at that time, I, I couldn't join. I had had my fail. Yeah, you, you, you couldn't be comfortable with that. No. You didn't, you, there was no trust. No. No trust. Uh, and it wasn't until the late 90s that I even have been able to discuss the DSEG. It was much too painful. Yeah. It wasn't until like 96 where I was able to start talking about it. Uh, I had a school in Lansing, uh, one of the first charters in the country. Matter of fact, you said you left. You you said you had opened up a business in the Baton Rouge area, uh, right there from uh, College Drive in the shopping center, Frails, right? Yes. And a beautiful dress shop. You was always a well dressed young lady. Just a class all the way around. Beautiful lady. Just so happened one day I had they had brought me in. I had a restaurant on Holland Road. And I was at this meeting with you, my first meeting for the Chambers of Commerce. <laughs> and at that meeting, I sat one, I, I must have been on the right side, you was in the middle, 
Carlos on was sitting. Carlos Tipper was sitting. You were on my left. I was on your left. Carlos was on my right. And we started this meeting. This is my first chamber meeting. You know what I mean? I don't know what's going on. And uh, so the meeting gets started, and you raise your hand and make a comment, and you tell Mr. Bill Litter, that was his name. Yes. Who was the chair, the uh, the president of the chamber at the time? And you stood up. You. I did not know how eloquent your speech was at the time. You cussed that man out, didn't say not one cuss word. That was the most sophisticated cussing I ever heard. Right? <laughs> he was an old country boy, could not articulate the language that way. So he called you a gal, and he and he he said, "Well, I don't know what this gal talking about." You sit, he come and said, "I sit your ass." I don't know how you said that. You kicked Carlos <laughs> on the thing. You say Carlos. You gonna let this white man talk to me like I said? No, they, they go hard up in here. <laughs> I said, you know, man, he said we're beating. I got free beating. I didn't know what was going on. <laughs> so, so, so he got be a little got a little bit of all that other stuff you went through too. And you kid Collins, Collins stood up with beer. Ain't no need to be talking like that. <laughs> well. You just happened to come in when the S hit the fan. All right, uh, Collis had recruited me like about a year, year and a half prior to that meeting, asking me to join the chamber because we need to make some change here in Baton Rouge for black folks. I said, Collis, you don't want me. <laughs> you don't know me, Collis. <laughs> I tend to get people in trouble. <laughs> He said, no, that's what we need. Somebody like, I said, Collis, you don't want me? Yes, we do. I said, okay. So Collis got me involved in the chamber because I had the business on College Drive. Okay. We were trying to work out with the chamber to have some of the bankers and business white business owners to kind of mentor new black businesses coming in and give them support. Back then, and I'm pretty sure it's pretty much the same now, everything worked on the good old boy network. If you needed a loan, oh yeah, I know so-and-so. If you're white and you can get a loan. Black folks couldn't get a loan, but not, you know. So what? that's what we were trying to do is bridge that gap, get some mentors, get these uh, white bankers and people in power to know you so that you could become, I know you wouldn't be a good old boy, but at least they would recognize you. Well, we worked with Bill Little for quite a while on that. Nothing really came of it. So we started our own group, Merge, Minority Entrepreneurs Research Group, which is the Black Chamber. All right, so we started Merge. Well, when that happened, Bill Little got angry and he stopped, basically stopped working with us. Collis was on the board, so Collis could still come to meetings. Bill Little wanted to elect Tom Ed McEwen for mayor. And he called that morning meeting with all the black ministers and the so-called political, some of the political leaders that he thought he could control. And they were going to have this breakfast meeting. Well, I wasn't invited. Oh, you can't, 
You was an uninvited guest. You called that Rutgers over there? Yes. <laughs> At least I was invited there. Right. So, Carlos, <coughs> Carlos said, no, Fred, I want you at this meeting. I kept telling Carlos, you don't want me, Carlos. You got too much going on. I'm trouble. So, we're in this meeting, and Bill Little tells these ministers that he wants you people to vote for Tom Ed because he's going to do you people a lot of good. Oh, that. Yeah, I remember that now. Yes. Bring it back now. Yes, fire literally came out of my ears. So I had to attack Bill Little on that, first of all, for calling us you people. Who's you people? Yeah, yeah. So, you know? so we went on that, and then in response to me, he said he started Merge. And calling me a gal and then starting Merge. <laughs> you know, so to keep me from literally jumping across the table and grabbing him in his neck, I kicked Collis and I said, you better defend this. Yeah. And because Collis was right there with me starting Merge. So Collis stood up for me. I thanked him for that. You know, I just wanted, you know, the black ministers to know that Merge was a black organization, right. that Collis and I started Merge. Um, Bill Little didn't have any, Bill Little had pulled out when we were trying to get mentors. So that's why we started Merge. Uh, Bill Little didn't have anything to do with Merge. So college stood up, but right after that, the big guns started coming after college. They started attacking him, his businesses, trying to shut him down, just immediately after that happened. And I still apologize to college for to this day. Uh, and I keep telling him, I said, college, I told you don't mess with me. <laughs> I told you don't mess with me, you know, because it's dangerous when you take on the status quo. You know, I had to, um, that was just a, an, another episode in the life of Fred Rivers. Well, well, I just remember that because that was my first chamber meeting. Yeah. Right? Well, we and then we had, Griffin and I had just gotten to be too powerful in the city. Uh, we own, I had Freya's in Village Square Shopping Center. Uh, we had a grant from the Lieutenant Governor's Office, Bobby Freeman, for show-offs. Which was, tell us about what, what was show-off again? Show-offs was a performing arts studio. During the week, it was an, uh, basically after school and summer program. We had jazz musician, Baton Rouge High teacher who had a jazz group there. We had acting, uh, Valerian Smith, Dr. Valerius. Yes. Okay. Uh, with community chorus, we, we had a chorus group, we had modeling, just about any of the arts that you wanted. You had we Laura had, Burgess and Val th Bushwald. That, that's right. I remember Val, that. And Valerie has Bougies today. Yeah, which was, was, was originally Freya. Well, right? she worked for me, but the, for yes, me. she has Bougies uh -huh. doing quite well, and everybody needs to go see Valerie Bougies. <laughs> but show-offs and then on weekends we would have what was called Battle of the Bands. Service merchandise had Battle of the Bands each year. 
So on Fridays and Saturdays, we'd have bands from all over, black, white, country, western, whatever, would come and perform at show-offs. It was no in and outs. It was a teen club. Um, IDs. We required IDs. Griffin would go in and uh, check them out, fill out the application and everything. Didn't cost them a dime. All we wanted was to make sure that you were safe in this environment. Yeah, now, yeah. there was a teen club over there by Cortana that they were shooting and having fights almost every weekend. We never had any problems at ours. I was the only adult inside the club, sometimes with 200 kids. All the gangs in the city were represented in that club, and we never had a problem. We had the Smurfs, we had uh, Valley Park. Wrecking Crew? Yeah, we had Southside Wrecking Crew, we had Fuji Crew. All of the gangs in the city, I was Mama Fred to all of them. You know, if I walked by the bathroom, maybe smell a little weed coming out, knock on the door, all right, I hear you, come on out. Never had a problem. Miss Dunn, the police officer, Warren Dunn's mother. Betty. She worked the detail at, at show-offs. Loved her. I mean, we, we had, for a year and a half, I, I had no, no weekends to myself. It was all at show-offs. And sometimes parents wouldn't even pick up kids. We'd end up having to take them home. They'd pick them up from the house. Uh, Fuji crew would come by on Sunday, eat us out of house and home. <laughs> And I started show-offs basically to save my son. He was hanging out. He, he went to Baton Rouge High. He was hanging out uh, in Tigerland with, with some young white kids. They were smoking uh, and drinking in the parking lot in Tigertown. Uh, one of those kids ended up drowning in his own pool from an overdose of drugs. So in my effort to make sure I saved my son, because if the police had come to Tiger Town and stopped those kids, guess whose son would have gone to jail? Mine. The rest of them, their parents would have been able to take them home. Mine would have gone to jail or be dead. So we opened show-offs. He was a, a Sanford played a guitar at Baton Rouge High. He was all-state band for guitar. The band that uh, he played in, it was called Paramount, and they were great. Some of the kids that uh, were in the band are musicians today. Uh, Roland Garin, uh, Meryl Porsche plays with Euphoria, Ronnie Whitfield. So, oh, Dr. Ronnie Whitfield. Yep, yeah, right. the, yeah, the hip-hop doctor. Hip doctor. Yes. yes. All of this came out of show-offs. Meryl Poche, the drummer, has a map engineering group. Mark Piro. Yeah. We had Michael Ward played. He wasn't in their band, but Michael Ward came through and played for show-offs. So yeah. we've had just an enormous amount of, of talent. And, uh, but that's so you had a lot of, you and your husband, Griffin, had a lot of impact on the Baton Rouge community. But what happened not long after you decided to leave the state of Louisiana? We had two, two businesses. Two, we had three. Three. Three because we had the, what was that? Entrepreneurial Retail Institute. Yeah. We had another one where we trained adults right. to go into sales and merchandising. 
Yes. Oh, right. With Earl Marcel, we we did the Black Expo. The, the first, I don't oh, know the if they, how long they continued, but we did the, we produced the first Black Expo in the businesses. Mid, in the mid 90s? No, no, no this, was, this was before 90s. This was in the 80s. 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 It, this 70s. was in the 80s. 80s. Yes, when we had show-offs and Freya's. That was at Southern University. Uh -huh. We had the first Black Expo in the city at Southern University. And we coordinated that with uh, Earl Marcel. Now, who was Earl Marcel? He's, he was the son of Marcel's. Marcel had a, a gas station on Washington Street, right there by the interstate, before it was an interstate. Okay. Uh, and this is his son. Earl was a professor Administrator, uh, at, at, at Southern so. University at the time. Yeah, we had quite a bit going on. And Griffin was head of corrections, um, deputy secretary in corrections. So we had infiltrated the political <laughs> circles of Baton Rouge. Well, we had a fire in our house. That morning, Griffin was out of town and he called me right before I was getting ready to leave. I was cooking that morning. He called right before I was getting ready. I just ran out of the house and because I was late after he called me and evidently I left the fire on. Well, there's a fire department like three blocks. We were in Concord at the time. Concord. Right. Concord Estate. Concord Estate. So you know there's a fire department right around the corner oh, from us. Oh, no, I'll take your word okay. for it. Okay. <laughs> right. Well, needless to say, they didn't respond to the call. My neighbor had had a kitchen fire maybe about two years earlier. It didn't do anything but some smoke damage. They came in, put some fans in, and she repainted her kitchen. It was done. My house burned to the ground. I remember that to the ground. The fire department that responded was one From all LSU. the way over by LSU. Mm -hmm. One right around the corner. One right around the corner, did not respond. Then the one that responded from LSU said they couldn't find the fire department. It was up on, on the corner. It didn't get up and move, you know. It was still right there on the corner. It was so bad that even after the one fire department responded, the neighbors had gotten out their hoses trying to wet their houses down to make sure they wouldn't catch fire from our the house. Fire was burning to right, it, it was flames. We were front page color news for two days in Baton Rouge. Color. And so I told Griffin. Hold, hold it, that, that was the name of the, the segment? No. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, but I mean, it was full color. Okay. The, back then, you didn't get color in newspapers. It was rare to have a color photograph. Everything was black and white. We were color. They wanted to see that fire. Let it burn, let it burn. Yes. At the same time, Griffin was the drug czar in New Orleans. It had gotten to the place where he told Mayor Bartholomew, he said, uh, look, write this department out. Don't put it in your budget for next year because it's too dangerous right now. So here we were in December. He was going to be without a job. My house had burned down. I'm living with my mama. We were talking about moving to the Bahamas. I would, I. <laughs> you get out of the country. <laughs> right. You, uh, College of the Bahamas had offered me a position. I was ready to go. But 
at that time, I couldn't bring Griffin unless we were separated or divorced. I told you to leave him behind. Right. I should have. I should have. <laughs> well, listen. <laughs> I could be laying on the sand today. At any rate, um, Griff, Griffin's brother called and said, man, come on up here. You got your master's from Michigan State. Come on back, work on your doctorate, you know. And we, we had nothing at that point. So, you know, we packed up and moved to Michigan. And what year was that? 91. In 1991. 1991. That was not long after you stood up in the chamber meeting. Right. That was, I mean, that happened. Well, see, and, and that's why we decided to make the move. I told Griffin, I said, you know, I have been fighting racism too long in Baton Rouge, and I'm tired. Uh, McCoyne had been elected mayor, so Bill Little and McCoyne had this thing going in the city. No, not McCoyne, you mean McHugh. McHugh, Tom Ed McHugh. Yeah, Tom Ed McHugh. So the politics were terrible, and it was anti-Freya. The Junior League and the store, uh, they weren't desegregated. <clears throat> it was all white Junior League here. And they came to me and asked if I'd buy, a, buy an ad for holidays, their uh, big Christmas fundraiser. And I said, I can't. I can't support anything that's still segregated. And they said, well, if you can't support us, we won't support you. And quite a number of my customers were junior leaguers, so they, yeah, and I had charge accounts, they stopped paying. You had an official line group of people. Yeah, so they stopped paying on their charges, uh, threw me into bankruptcy with, with Freya's. Yeah, so it was no need in trying to sue him. We didn't have that kind of money so to we sue him. we were holding money. But you also ran for Secretary I ran for Secretary of State. What year that's, was that? That's another issue I'm not going to discuss. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so, so when anyway, when they put that color photograph of the burn house in the newspaper, it was like, Griff, it's time to get out of here. They're going to kill us. Your, yeah. your, your life is at Yeah, they're, they're going to kill us, Griff. So it's, it's time to get out. You know, and, and we, we, we talk about black people having power and, and not being afraid. It's not that you're not afraid. You just get so angry you have to fight. I remember Daddy, when he was fighting civil rights early on, they threatened black teachers that if they went to him as a dentist, uh, that they would lose their job. Most of the black teachers in Baton Rouge stopped going to Daddy. He, um, I mean, we almost lost everything. He, his practice went down to nothing. Same thing with Raymond Scott, with, with the, his tailor shop. But we fought on. And eventually people, you know, started coming back again. Uh, Doretha Davis, uh, her mother worked, uh, did day's work when we deseg the schools. The woman that she worked for said, well, if your daughter goes and, and goes through with this, you're going to lose your job. She said, well, fire me. You know, I mean, people's lives were in constant danger and peril. Even if it weren't physical, the economic impact. Uh, a lot of people uh, get angry with uh, T.J. Jemison and his stand with the bus boycott that he sold us out. 
that we could have gotten all the seats on the bus instead of the compromise that was worked out. And I disliked him for ages and would always talk about him and say how he sold us out as a community. But then I found out from my father who said he had to or he would have lost his church. The bank threatened him. Right. When the students walked out of Southern in 1960, now he did sell us out them. Him and Felton Clark sold us out. Um, that was the one time Baton Rouge came together as a community. They stood behind those students. They raised the money to get them out of jail. And they told Felton Clark, we will stand behind you. Don't buckle. Don't expel these students. And Jemison and Clark made a pact with city council and white citizens council and they expelled the students. But Clark had offers from all across the country from universities saying, you have a job here, you have a job here. Stand behind your students. And they didn't. So, but again, when you are indebted to white people, you have no power because they can call in those notes and ruin you financially. So those were the things that were going on at that time. Mm. And I had to get out just for self-preservation. And your own mental yes. sanity. My mental sanity and my physical health. I, I was scared. At, at that point, it was like, I'm, I'm just tired of fighting. I'm going to hurt somebody. I was carrying a gun at the time. It had gotten to that point. Every, I had a gun in my purse everywhere I went. But you were trained. Yeah, I had training. Griffin made sure all of us got training. Trained? No, we oh, went to that. no, we went to special <laughs> classes. <laughs> yeah, but you know, and the thing about you, when you walked around, you you walked with this air, this elegance, this, this sophistication. That's oh, just who you, you were. You know, you was a you're a beautiful sister inside and out. And all most people here just admired you and your husband. You and Griffin, y'all was a staple in the community. But to hear you speak anywhere was so powerful, you know. I, nope, I didn't know your story, didn't know much about you, just knew how you always took a stand, how you and Griffin always stood for the right thing. Plus, y'all supported me. Griffin always come by my restaurant, I mean, he... Well, you know, on Fridays, I was there. Soon as we closed. Oh, yeah, he, he, he would come by, pick up some food, go by, the, and, but people never knew what's all people under, underneath, underlying thing that was going on to destroy you all, to take you all the way out. You know, just like this, they don't quit. You know, like I went through some legal things and I went to the bank a couple of years ago and I had to open up a bank account to, to, for this particular business. I went to open up a bank account. I said, then you got some issue with the federal government? I said, yeah, they, you, know, they, you know, they came after me. I, you know, sent me to prison. I went through the whole process. I said, wait, anything else going on? I said, well, not that I know of. So she went back, came back, she brought some paperwork. She said, you, you read this, you, you know anything about this? I said, I don't even know what that is. And I saw some information from the federal government that had some about a debt that, I, that was owed to them. She said, well, I said, what is it? I asked her, what is it? She said, this is OFAX. I said, OFAX. I said, what is OFAX? See, this is something we have to do. We open up any account. We got to open. We got to go through this procedure. 
and OFAX is the one we got to go through. He said, I don't know, it's just be something they're trying to do. I said, well, I don't even know that. Oh, about 36, 37 years. So it's the first time it ever came up. I said, it's the first time it ever came up. She said, I said, well, I don't know what it is. So we're going back and forth, because now she don't know, now she knows me very well. But now she's like, I don't know who's going to open this account up. So now this lady know me, but now she's about to take a whole new direction. But to make a long story short, that OFAX was the Office of Foreign Affairs and Terrorism. Oh. They got me on the terrorist list. Oh. Now why would, how, how is that? So how do you get somebody on the terrorist list? So we do know that this system, for whatever reason, if they don't agree with you, don't care for you, don't like you, they figure out a way to take you out, take us out. Well, well they take each other out too, that well, they take us out. See in. <laughs> The middle 60s, yes, <laughs> Vietnam, black revolution going on in the 60s. Black folks, in fact, Samuel Yet wrote this book called The Choice. The Choice and he outlines how they had readied concentration camps <laughs> for us and everything, and nobody believed him. COINTELPRO, operated by J. Edgar Hoover. If you participated in any black organization, if they thought you might be a threat, you were in this FBI registry. At that time, my first husband was in the service. We were stationed at Fort Meade. Black officers, there were only a few of us, would get together on weekends and everything, and we were talking about COINTELPRO and Samuel Yet's book, and a couple of them didn't believe it. I asked, I'm not going to call any names, I asked this major to, because he had high, the highest NSA clearance, and I said, see if you can find COINTEL files, look for one name, <laughs> one name, Doopy Anderson, <laughs> right, and I said, that will prove to us that they are collecting the information. I said, because basically he's just in obscure on a national scene. He's only known in Baton Rouge. So if they have information on him, they're collecting information on everybody. He found it. He said, not only do they have your daddy, they have you. <laughs> wow. They found out he had been in there, they revoked his clearance, and he ended up leaving the service because he couldn't get promoted any higher. He was a major. It was, it was one of us? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So they took him out, too? Oh, yeah. They took him out, too. You, you just for looking in. Just for looking. Just, just for looking. Yeah. They took him out, too. So COINTELPRO is for real. And a few years ago, when I was still in Michigan, uh, when the federal government uh, opted to let you see your records, I wrote to them and asked for my daddy's record, who was then deceased, and mine. And they said, oh, they had been destroyed. You know, that's a lie. Federal government destroyed crap. They told you it was destroyed. They told me that those records had been destroyed. Well, you just, you just verified that you had a record. <laughs> If you're going to tell me it was destroyed, you had a record to destroy. Mm. But they don't destroy records. No, they don't destroy No. Like no. So when you, when you said that about the bank, I laughed because every time when they first started with the security through the airports and things, 
every time I was pulled out. Yes, I was pulled out and searched. And then it got to the point where they said, well, oh, you're just a random person. I said, it stops being random when every time I come through, you know, I'm going to be searched. So my, my kids always laugh and say, don't, don't go through with mama because you know they're going to pull up. <laughs> yeah, so I'm, I'm still on the list, Lyman. <laughs> we to dig you down. So on this note, and uh, we got we got to continue this dialogue and conversation. You got so much rich history, so much great information, and a wonderful story that I'm elated that you know Comtime was able to capture this great history and uh, this this wonderful story. And you know we're gonna come back with another segment here. We're gonna have to add. I don't, I, I, I'm going to put him in. We're going to go and let your husband Griffin <laughs> participate. Just don't let him take over the show, all right? <laughs> so we'll be back with part two. Thank you, Ms. Freya no, Anderson, Anderson Rivers, uh, for this opportunity and to share your wonderful story. Thank you. That was fun. Man can shackle the hand, man can shackle the feet. But only you can shackle the mind. The mind is always free to travel wherever you dare to take it. Welcome to Count Time.